0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair.
1: I am delighted and proud to introduce him as Academy Award winner.
2: And the Oscar goes to...
3: And the Oscar goes to...
1: The winner, it's a tie. And any little girl who's, who's practicing a speech on the telly, you never know. Mom,
2: I just want an Oscar.
0: I am Katie Rich. I'm here for today's interview episode with David Canfield. Hi, Katie. And with Rebecca Ford. Hello. So guys, we realized just before we sat down to record this that we have two actors who have two projects out this season what a lovely coincidence, um, but, but entirely appropriate um, because you have interviews with um, two actors who are incredibly talented and are getting to show us even more of that range. Um, let's start with you, David, and your conversation with Coleman Domingo. I do feel like we have been talking about him so much this season, even before the strike ended and he was able to talk to us um, because both Rustin and The Color Purple have been majorly on our radars this entire time. So what was it like finally getting to tell him how great he is?
4: I think he sensed that You know, this was going to be a moment for him, and there was uh, understandably some frustration of, you know, waiting to get to talk about it. Um, But Coleman is somebody who's been in this business for a long time, and who has been, and he's pretty open about this in the interview, waiting for an opportunity like this for a long time, uh, and and makes really good on it. And both Rust and the Color Purple projects he did back to back, which is kind of insane to me given the very unique demands Mm -hmm. of both of them. Um, But he certainly pulled it off.
0: Uh, yeah, we've been talking about The Color Purple on the show more recently because it's been screening more widely. And it feels like, you know, maybe if he's not the one name everyone comes out of The Color Purple talking about, I think the female co-stars are taking more of the attention. It really just bolsters the wrestling campaign and also the sense that he is just someone you absolutely cannot take your eyes off of in any film.
4: Yeah, and it's it's really, for me, between the two of them, the range. I mean, these are completely different characters. They require completely different styles of acting um, and he is completely feels like the perfect fit for both somehow. And I think that's a real credit. And he talks about this to what he's been through in this industry, which is like having to be a utility player on so many different kinds of projects where, you know, as he sees it now, he can play any role. He can step into any project and, and be a guy who can get the job done and do make something special out of it.
0: Yeah, well, I really want to hear his perspective on all of that. So let's hear your conversation with the star of both Rustin and The Color Purple, Coleman Domingo.
4: All right, we have Coleman Domingo here, uh, MVP kind of of the fall movie season. He is star of Rustin streaming on Netflix, and he's also a key player in The Color Purple. Hi, Coleman. Hi, how are you? Uh, I'm well. I'm so excited to talk to you. I'm so excited I can talk to you. The strike is over. Uh, I And and you had a couple movies that were a struck project, so it's good to have you here. Um, To start, let's let's start a little meta, uh, because obviously these movies are coming out, uh, especially Rustin, uh, which you are number one on. You are the lead of this movie. The rollout had to start without you a little bit, but I I know you're getting out there. So how have you experienced suddenly sharing this movie with people?
3: Uh, You know, it's like always basically shot out the cannon last (laughs) Wednesday night. That sounds right. Literally, it sounds about right because I was, that evening that the strike ended, I was on a plane to Washington, D.C., where we had um, press and also we had a presentation of our film for HBCU college students uh, that was introduced by President Barack Obama and Michelle Obama. So, it's no small thing, but something about this leg of the journey, you know, it premiered at Telluride and TIFF. And, you know, of course, the, the machine of it was working without me. Mm-hmm. And then the idea for me to jump on board when it's in Washington, D.C., where that was where we finished filming Rustin. And there's so much about, about the film, about creating, you know, the March on Washington. Mm-hmm. Um, it felt so purposeful and so right that this is exactly the way we should roll this film out with my participation. So it felt incredible, honestly. It felt, I don't know, it, re- it reminded me of like being so mindful and intentional about this film and uh, the impact that we hoped that it could have, you know, by by telling a story about Bayard Rustin and making him the central character in his own story and looking at his legacy and his uh, intent and in how he organized the March in Washington.
4: Yeah. No, th- I think that's so beautifully put. And and this really is a movie where it, it feels bigger than the performance. It feels bigger than what you bring to it as an actor. Because as you say, this is a film where I know you've said one of your missions here is to make sure people never forget or don't know who this man is again. Um, yeah. Can you talk about the responsibility of stepping into the role, um, both as an actor and as someone who is now getting to talk about him and share you know, how extraordinary
3: uh, his contributions were. It's tremendous. I have a photo of Bayer Rustin on my wall because he really is a a North Star in many ways of being purposeful and intentional in the world and being your whole, full self uh, without apology. Mm -hmm. So I knew that that was a tremendous undertaking, especially a film like this where I'm pretty much in every frame of this film. And um, and it's seismic, what I have to do. It, is, um, it requires you to be a bit a bit of a virtuoso in a way, because he was a virtuoso. This was yes. a man that, that uh, doesn't come along every day. He played the lute and sang Elizabethan love songs, was a star athlete, and he was a, you know, uh, a young communist. He, he was an mm-hmm. advisor to Dr. King,, you know, and he was openly gay at a time when it would cost him his entire livelihood. And also, you know, be a violation to his body in many ways. So there was a great opportunity to infuse this character that is unsung in history with as much humanity, as much complexity, as much love and grace, enthusiasm and passion as I could. Because also I felt a responsibility not only to, it's the first time his story is really being pulled out of the history books and and told, but because there are people who are living who are... you're beholden to, you know, it's like, you know, people who knew him, who worked side by side with him and knew of his impact and influence and also question why he was pretty much erased from the history books, you know. So there's a great responsibility. And I know for me, I feel very, I'm filled with gratitude that the people who knew and loved him, they see the work and the effort and all the love that I poured into this portrayal. Because it is. It is bigger than me. It's what I can do as an artist. Those rare times you get as an artist to really pour everything you have into it and all your skills, all the things you've been doing in the theater and and television, you you know, as a writer, as a director, as a producer, to create this film. It called on everything that I had. I couldn't have done this film, I think, 20 years ago. It wouldn't make sense. The wildest thing is I just realized just the other day that Bayard was 51 years old when he organized the March on Washington, and I was 51 huh. years old when I filmed it. Wow. I needed that history. I needed that, that experience in my life to actually bring to Rustin. So I understood where he was coming from in his life. <laughs> mm. <laughs>
4: yeah you're talking about the career too of a, of a working actor, a working artist who I think this is your first feature where you're number one on the call sheet. Am I right about yeah. that?
3: Yeah, absolutely, which is for me to actually recognize that because I've just been too busy just doing work. you know what I mean? like you keep your nose your nose to the one yeah. you're doing the work and showing up and and then at some point you realize you I didn't even realize that I hadn't been number one on the call sheet. I've just been mm-hmm. trying to get work. I've been numbered three, I've been number four, I've been number nine, I've been number sixty-eight. <laughs> but it is <laughs> but it yeah. is but I but I hope that people can see that this is the work of a journeyman. Um, an artist that mm. has been working for a very long time. And things and and it hasn't been the easiest road, but it has been a fulfilling ro- road. And I think by not being number one on the call she taught me how to be how to create for myself, how to mm. create opportunities and produce and direct and write and all these other things. So that's been wonderful and so the idea of having this moment in my career is truly remarkable because um you know i have many comrades it doesn't happen for and they're just as talented and they work just as hard but i know that i've worked incredibly hard and uh, i've been worked hard to to create and to be kind and um to give myself access and so it's nice when suddenly you're having a moment like this. I can't. I can't deny it. It's a. It's an extraordinary moment I'm having in my career. Extraordinary. Mm-hmm.
4: I would add a uh, very deserved. Thank um, you. you were talking about what you put into this performance and and the, the many layers that go into Bayard Rustin. And and when I saw I saw this film in Telluride, and what stayed with me for days was your exuberance mm-hmm. in the part. And the joy uh, that and it felt it felt so alive and obviously a lot of that comes from the man himself, um, but from what I'm hearing and from what I saw, it also sounded like that was you a little bit coming into
3: that part. I think so. I was raised by a mother and a father who really helped me shape my my idea of this world, believing that the world is more good than not. I am very hopeful. I wake up. I know I'm a joyful person. I wake up with a smile. I wake up uh, excited about the possibility of what this is gonna be like and what I can do and be a part of in it. I'm an optimistic person. So also I knew that that was a part of Bayard. It was very true. Um, Anyone who knew him said that he walks into a room and yet charisma for days and he was um, excited about what tomorrow brings. So I knew that they were, we were brothers in that way. I know I can bring that part of myself, that, that fullness in myself in my experience without apology, you know? Um, this film, in my mind, it is not the stuffy biopic, the sort of like, you know, putting the medicine down your throat, <laughs> making you small. <smile. laughs> it, it really is, it should, I think it's a joyous expression of organizing and being hope-filled. And believing in the possibility of this country and your place in it. I don't know. I think, I think it's, it's, it's joyful. and I, I think that's what I feel like I got from him when I would, in all my research about Rustin, mm-hmm. that he was a very hopeful human being. And I wanted to call him that part of myself every day, not only in the way I portrayed him, but also in the way I led the set every single day whether they heard the music coming from my trailer or the way I would show up on set and say hello and hug everyone. I wanted to share that feeling.
4: Yeah. Can you take us inside the the technical part uh, of of playing him and how you figured out the physicality and the speaking pattern? He's a very particular guy in addition to everything you're talking about.
3: Yes, it is. He's... um, First of all, it required, I think, the moment I knew the film was green and I was a part of it, I think I had about five months of preparation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'm very rigorous when it comes to preparing, <laughs> because that's all I understand. Sure. Um, so uh, whether it's examining his writings or his debates or his interviews, um, I would look at the way he sat with his leg crossed or the way he would have his finger you know, his index finger on the side of his face with a portrait. And I would question the, the choices or the, all the moments around that to get there. And, you know, or and even also physically, I would look at, you know, the way he moved his body through spaces and whether how different it was when he was in a boardroom from when he was sitting at home. And I could see a different body and the way he took up space. Um, and then uh, his voice, he had a mid-Atlantic standard accent. Yes. That he created for himself. <laughs> yeah. He's from Westchester, Pennsylvania. And he was such an original. And I think he even gave himself an original dialect, which is awesome. And then I had to interpret why would someone make up their own accent? And I thought, well, I think it's a useful tool. Language is a great tool to let people hear hear you differently, why you stand out from the rest of the pack, why um you wanna how you want to drive your point home. And then there are times when the accent, and I was very conscious of it from scene to scene, there are times where I'll pull off the accent just a bit, where I feel he's a bit more vulnerable, or he's just at home, or no one's watching, you know? And then sometimes I would dial it up when he needs to have a flourish or uh, gain on the room that he was in. So we, we really worked to make sure that I was playing with his body and his voice and the way he moved his spaces in a virtuosic way. You know what I mean? You're you're playing him like a a
1: violin.
0: Ever wanted to go inside the Met Gala?
2: I'm Chominardi, and this week on The Run Through with Vogue, we take you inside the world's most exclusive and glamorous party. We'll talk about the best looks from the red carpet and everything that happened after. Listen to The Run Through with Vogue wherever you get your podcasts.
4: So you are working with George C. Wolfe here, and he's a director you've of course worked with previously. Um, and it, it felt very much like a George C. Wolfe production. He's a legend of theater. He's populated this film with many titans of theater. Um, but what's your relationship with him like, uh, just in terms of collaboration, and how did that inform uh, what you bring to the movie?
3: Yeah, it's great. I think we our relationship has grown in such an incredible way since we worked on Marianne's Black Bottom. I think that was sort of our um, test tube time of how Mm -hmm. we operate together. Um, George is a great critical thinker. He's a visionary director, and he's also very much an actor's director. So he's willing to get in the fray with you and really unpack, you know, motivations, intentions, uh, language in an extraordinary way. And so I think that when he knew he wanted me to play Byron Rustin, this had to be a very different partnership. This isn't just direct an artist and crafted, you know, he's got a film to make, yes. But I have ownership of so much of the, the soul of the character and also how it operates. So I think that there is, a, there really is a great balance of the two of us and we had to trust each other in a very new, unique way. I think that we found a sense of, um, I mean, even more delicacy, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. in the way, in nuance, in the way that we created moments together. Because he also knew that I was—I don't know—I had to own this character in a different way. It wasn't just as part of the ensemble. I had to own and really understand his heart and trajectory. Mm-hmm. That does give you a uh, more sense of ownership and, and and advocacy for a character in moments and what makes sense. And we very much were. We I think it's a great partnership that we that we had on Rustin. Mm.
4: How did you find? Being in virtually every scene of this movie, um, how did you feel, find going between so many really incredible actors, legendary actors? You have this scene with Audra McDonald where she just kind of <laughs> brings it down, and and Glenn Turman, of course, was also in Ma Rainey. Um But being the one who's suddenly playing off of all of these different energies, I mean, it's got to be quite an experience.
3: It is. It, it is, and, it, and I think you have to be, I guess, up for the task, I knew that even in the prep, I did my work. But then the, the next level of the exciting work is to respond, to really listen and respond to these other incredible actors that, that's populating the film. So I had the lion's share of them. I had the best of the best, which is great on a daily basis. And a lot of young artists who are just, you know, making their debuts. You know, I've, I'm not, I've never been an actor who has sort of like, I will rehearse, I won't ever rehearse something and not be open to what is being brought to me. I love that, that moment that you can't rehearse, you know? It's like, I, 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 I've seen actors do it, and it drives me insane. I thought, was well, that fun for you to just figure out the whole thing, and no matter what they bring to you, whatever gifts they bring to you as an artist, and you don't even take it in because you've got an idea about it already, I'm not an actor. I will rehearse and do all my stuff and get my work done, and then I'm open. I'm like, oh wow, I didn't know that you were going to deliver that line to me this way. Mm-hmm. I will respond like this. So every scene should feel different, I think, because that's that's true to human nature. You respond differently, and you're different in every room, and you know. So mm-hmm. that's the beautiful thing that everyone came bringing their A game every single day. Did it
4: feel strange at all to suddenly be the person who I guess is setting the tone, as you're saying? Um, I, I would imagine you'd observed a lot of other people do it, maybe some better than others, but uh it's it's a kind of another role on top of having to do so much on camera.
3: It is yet. I sort of have been the character that has helped set the tone in many films that, That's I, true. <laughs> that I was not that I was not the lead in, which is interesting. I would say. I would point to Selma with David Oyelowo. Mm-hmm. I I prayed with David before his speeches. I would make him laugh. I'm a, I'm almost like the warm up guy. I was the one on <laughs> his shoulders, warming up and getting him ready for it because I knew the work that he had to do. Mm-hmm. You know, he, David had to do exceptional work uh, for Selma, but I was all I was the one then making sure the rest of the company was doing good and. You know, I would make sure that we were having dance parties and days off and stuff like that. So I was sort of the uh the party planner around it to make sure that my central character can do what they need to do. Now, for this experience, I need to do both. You know, <laughs> I needed to be <laughs> I, I yeah. I was the birthday boy and I was planning the party. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I was the Your own party remote.
4: planner. Yes. Yeah,
3: so. <laughs> I was my own so I so I was able to be my own, which was which was I think, you know, which was such a blessing, because I think finally, after so many years in this industry, I kind of knew how to do it. Mm-hmm. I, knew, I knew the shortcomings and the blind spots of other uh, number one on the call sheets. And I knew, I knew the, the traps of being number one on the call sheet, too. I didn't want to be in a silo. I didn't want to be, you know what I mean? I, I'm like, no, yep. no, I'm actually a leader of people. So I have to yep. be involved with people. I couldn't just all of a sudden just, you know, have this sheen around me. I um, mean that didn't make sense. That didn't make sense with the intention of this film.
4: So, what was the window like between Rustin and Color Purple? I mean, it's it's
3: five minutes. <laughs> five minutes. <laughs> I filmed Rustin, and then I think I had maybe a couple weeks off, and went straight to Color Purple. Wow! And then I shot another film of mine that premiered at uh, TIFF that I produced called Sing Sing. Brilliant film, by the way. Thank you. I produced, really? I, I did Sing Sing, and then I went back to do pickups of Rustin that ne- the next day. So wow. I, went, I did three films back to back. And completely different characters. I mean,
4: the, the reason I asked that from Rustin to Color Purple is because I, I don't want to say in terms of the characterizations, you're going from light to dark, but there is a yes. a real a real darkness in terms of what you have to bring to Color Purple. How did you find that transition?
3: I, I think it's because again, it points to the early work that I did in the theater. I was always sort of the um, utility actor who played five different roles. So I know to hold, I know how to hold five different experiences all at the same time. So it's something I just, I just know how to do. It's one of, and I think I didn't know that that would be a strength of mine, but I, I can hold containers of completely different human beings. I don't know, and I think that just comes from. Doing what I've been doing for over 32 years, you know what I mean, and I feel like okay, yeah. yes, I'm good at that. I don't know if I'm good at everything,
4: but I'm good at that. <laughs> built for this moment you're having in a lot of ways, right?
3: <laughs> I I guess, yes, I, yes, I would say yes, I am. I, I guess I'm, I am. I know that I'm built for this moment, and I'm I'm lucky that these moments of amplification in my career are happening now and not. 10, 20 years ago. I don't know if I... I have a, I have a grounded sense of who I am and what I do in this industry that um, it doesn't become insanely noisy. Mm-hmm. There's, there's a knowingness of your work and your work ethic and who you are and what you believe in that is not um, swayed in mm-hmm. this one
4: let, let me close then by asking you about how it feels as as an actor, because when you have these three projects that you're looking at back to back to back, you're clearly, I mean, anyone who's watched you knows um, you're a great actor. Uh, and it's really exciting to see you step into the space. But, you know, with a lead comes maybe a richer role, a role like you're talking about with Rustin, where you have these five months. Um, Did you feel pushed or challenged in some way um, to be able to bring that particularly to screen roles and to to kind of that full bearing.
2: Yeah,
3: I generally don't do work unless it challenges me and unless it frightens me a little bit, to be honest. Mm -hmm. When I was cast as Rustin, and the same goes for Color Purple, the moment you're cast and there were offers, you think, can I do this? And I actually think, I'm not exactly sure how to do it but I'm very curious on how to get it done. And I think that, that maybe that that little bit of stress, that little bit of um, insecurity is what we all need to create, to be honest. I think any legendary human that I've ever worked with, they have a sense of um, feeling like they don't have it all, that they're not exactly sure. There isn't this robust confidence to where it's like, oh, I got this. If you feel like you got it, I think you shouldn't do it. That, mm-hmm. like I've, I've never, it doesn't make sense to me. So like, even when, like, even when I did Zola, um, when and Bravo cast me in that, I was very unsure that I could play this role. I was like, I don't <laughs> know. I, I, that, that's, but, but I know I had the capacity to do the research and do the work to figure out this character. the curiosity to make this person human and to love a character who I think is, you know, vile. You know, but I but I want to figure out how to love this character and, and how they need to exist in the world and in this mm-hmm. film. And that's what I think. So that's always been something that I do with ev- with every bit of work that I do. Putting together a film like Sing Sing, there's no blueprint for that. It, it feels like it could all fail, but I, I know that at the center is a, a pure beating heart in, in people who want to do something that is about amplifying disenfranchised people and mm-hmm. their stories. And I know that that's, maybe that's the thing as we're talking about it at, at my core. That's what I care about. I care about, you know, the work that I'm creating and and for generations and what, what's meaningful. And if it starts anything that has to do with that, and I feel like I want to do the work to try to get closer to getting it right, that's exciting. That keeps me wanting to do this work. That that Which is why I love what I do. But I also love what I do because I think that I feel like I have some access and agency in what I do and the stories that I tell,
2: because yep. I've always had
3: that, you know, early in my career, because when I was early in this business of struggling artist, a struggling actor, I had to learn how to create work for myself, work that was yep. meaningful, work that I cared about instead of playing every stupid criminal. On Nash Bridges, which I did do a lot of that, but, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, but but I want to create things that I cared about, and that's what gave me power, and that's why I always try to tell my fellow actors: we cannot sit and wait for opportunities; we have to create them. We have to yeah. create this yeah. world. We have to um, come together, and you can create because that's the biggest gift. No one can tell you not to create. Create from wherever you are. That's meaningful and purposeful, and your success is measured by your own success, not whether or not you know you're on the cover of this magazine or whatever. But I'm like, if you're working and you're just working in these very small places, but feel like you're making a difference, and being an artist fully, well, you're successful. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large,
4: a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious.
0: So, Rebecca, now let's hear your conversation with Jacob Elordi, who, kind of like Coleman Domingo, we've been talking about for a long time. And we knew we wanted to talk to him about his performance in Priscilla, but we're really waiting until the strike would end so we could dive into Saltburn, uh, in which he plays such an incredibly fun, likable, weird, uh, reminds you of the guys you had a crush on in high school kind of character. Um, and I really hope you got into all the many live strong bracelet nuances of his role in Saltburn.
1: You forgot handsome, Katie. You forgot one <laughs> well, of the I mean, most important
0: adjectives. <laughs> it's Jacob Elordi. I feel like that goes without saying. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I, I, I the, the minute the strike ended, I I knew I wanted to reach out to him because he hasn't been able to talk about Saltburn, whereas he has been talking about Priscilla. But what was interesting to me is that, you know, he shot these two projects, um, three weeks apart. And now he's having sort of this really incredible year again, kind of like I'm mean, showing this range that um, really proves that he can be, you know, that leading man part. So yeah, he had a lot to say about getting into character and, you know, switching between, you know, Elvis and his saltburn character, Felix, which was, sounds like it was quite a feat
0: yeah, I just recently caught up with Priscilla, and it's not like in um, in that movie they're trying to really mask him as Elvis. It's not like the kind of tra- transformation Austin Butler had, say in Elvis. But it was funny the moments where I could see like Felix, the Saltburn character kind of peeking out from under the Elvis hair and kind of realizing almost with the start that it was the same person, even though I knew that all along. Uh, it really did just point out to me how much he can play, you know, characters that aren't like hugely physically different but that feel so different in his hands. I was really impressed thinking of them side by side.
1: Yeah, I did I did point out to him that, you know, both of these characters are are dealing with sort of being the object of uh, the, the object of obsession, you know, for the people around them, whether that's Elvis or in Felix, you know, he's this man that this other guy is really obsessed with. And I was like, you must deal with something similar with your rising fame. So it was also interesting to kind of dig into how he's been handling his his time in the spotlight now. You know,
0: when um, David interviewed Charles Melton a few weeks ago, he was also asking him about, like, drawing on experiences of being famous to play these characters. And I feel like actors never want to, like, dive into it and admit that they're famous, but it is totally interesting to get into. Yep. Uh, there's nothing I love more than talking to actors
1: about being famous. And <laughs> it seems like nothing they would want to talk about less.
4: <laughs> What's amazing is uh, both of them, we really know them because of the same show, Euphoria. How about that? Mm, wow,
0: there we go. Well, I mean, recur- Coleman's been
4: around for a long time, but that definitely elevated him.
0: Well, uh, if you are an actor who wants to talk about being famous, please come on Little Gold Men. <laughs> uh, and in the meantime, let's hear Rebecca's conversation with the star of Priscilla and Saltburn, Jacob Elordi.
1: so. Jacob Elordi is having quite a year. He stars as Elvis in Sofia Coppola's Priscilla, and also stars in Emerald Fennell's Saltburn. Thank you for joining me.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: You know, I've seen both your films. I think they really capture the range that you are able to deliver in performances. But I'm curious for you if you see anything in common about these two roles that ties them together.
2: That's a funny question. I um, I actually, I made Priscilla three weeks after uh Saltburn. So they're strangely both kind of meshed together in my head because I would prep, I'd, I'd shoot all day in London and then I'd go home to my sort of this kind of Elvis cave, which was my hotel room, which was sort of all pictures of Priscilla and I had the music playing and the films on. And um, so the two are kind of in my head linked together forever. But I think in the in the film, other than both of them having a kind of ginormous house <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> between between Solburn and, uh, and Graceland, I'm not, I'm not sure if Felix has, has uh, too much of Elvis Presley in him.
1: It's interesting because I, I was wondering if you had shot them close together because is it difficult for you to sort of let one go and jump into the next? Do you need more than three weeks, you know, in a perfect world or how do you go through that process?
2: I think the the sort of short time is kind of what made it made it work for me in my head. I think if I'd had too long to worry about it, I would have been in a bit of strife because I would have over overthought the whole thing. Um, because I had to do a sort of a YP uh, RP, sorry, this um, British accent in Saltburn, um, so I got to lose that really quickly when I went into the Memphis. Memphis draw, but it kind of having the three weeks just gave me not a lot of time to worry about it. And I kind of had this deadline that I had to, to work to, which meant that I just kind of worked more efficiently, I I guess. But at the time before I'd started both of them, I thought it was going to be impossible (laughs) (laughs) because I'd gotten them around the same time.
1: Yeah. I know the Saltburn premiere was just the other night. So I I thought we could start with that. I feel like that film is super fun to watch with an audience because it is visceral. There are, you know, moments that I think you get to feel the audience react. What is it like for you to to watch that film with a with an audience?
2: Actually I um I snuck into a screening of it in my hometown. Mm. And it was unbelievable. I haven't been in a movie like that. I think probably since I I want to say maybe I saw the the first of the new Star Wars movies mm-hmm. uh, in theaters, and I thought it was a really special thing because it was Star Wars, and the audience was you know it was midday and everyone was there for it. But it was kind of it was kind of surreal seeing it with Saltburn because there's no IP or anything, there's no original concept or anything. It's just like a it's a it's a it's a new story, and to see people invested in the storylines and. To to hear people kind of going oh, gasping and yelling and hearing people in the drain scene go no 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 no, <laughs> no 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 God no like it's 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 a totally new cinematic experience and I'm just like I'm I can't believe I'm um, I'm in it and I get to be a part of it
1: yeah well tell me about Felix and why you felt like this would be an interesting character to take on
2: I had I had met with Emerald. A couple of years ago now in LA and we had a general meeting Mm. and she was so vague about what the movie was. She was like, you know, we've got this film and there's these guys in it and one is kind of like this and the other one's like this, but also it's not like that at all. Anyway, (laughs) thank you so much. It's so nice to meet you. And I was just so intrigued. You know, I was like, what? That was like the most cryptic, specifically cryptic thing I've ever heard. And then I got the script. And I, I just knew that I I had to be in it. Um, it was it was as fun on paper as it as it ended up being on screen. So then I happened to be in the UK a couple of months after that, and I got to audition for Emerald in the Room, which was my first first audition outside of sort of COVID times. So it was mm-hmm. the first one back, mm-hmm. um, so it was just terribly nerve wracking. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it was everything. It sort of it brought me back to what performance was like, um, you know, and what, what it really is to be in the room and work for a role. And um, and pretty much the experience from there was just like pure gold.
1: Yeah. I've talked to Emerald a couple of times in, on, on this podcast, and and she specifically said you brought something that a lot of the other actors who auditioned didn't where, you know, Felix can seem, obviously he's this object of desire and he's charismatic and all of this, but that you – Sort of showed that he's also sort of weak, and and you know um, is in these circumstances that he's in, based on how, you know his family and who is he born to. I'm I'm curious what you found in the layers of who Felix was. That you
2: know. <laughs> Emerald, Emerald saw me in the room, and she was like, "He's weak. <laughs> oh, I'll take him." <laughs> um,
1: but you saw more to him, I think, than maybe others. I think
2: said. I think it's just like. It's kind of uninteresting to sort of play tropes and ideas in films, and I think I've done I've done them before. So yeah. I think now I just try to always – it was the same thing playing Elvis. I try to kind of find like a back door into the character. I try to sort of find them when they're 10 years old, 11 years old, 12 years old. I try to find like the little boy in them. And I think that was the clearest thing to me with Felix was, you know, this guy's not just born – with a well, he's born with an immense amount of privilege, but he's not born with his with this great, you know, swagger and, mm-hmm. and you know, strut. You have to kind of develop that and learn that. And a lot of the time, the people that you meet that have that kind of sensibility, it, it usually comes from a place of great insecurity mm. um, or, or misunderstanding of their place in the world. So I think from for me, it was just trying to. I hate to use the kind of corny phrase, but trying to humanize him and really make him a person instead of just this kind of, um, movie character, you know?
1: And what does preparation look like for you? You know, as you're saying, Saltburn is original. There's, it's not based on real people. Like where do you get inspiration from when you're, you know, preparing in the weeks before you start production? Well, I'd,
2: I'd called, uh, I'd called Emerald, um, cause she knows the world a lot more than yeah. I do. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, she sent me a, a list of films and, and books to read, and I kind of took myself out to, uh, out to Palm Springs for two weeks and just locked myself away and wore only linen and walked around a swimming pool trying to, trying to find this, you know, this accent. And um, I read *Brideshead Revisited* and and yeah, just kind of just kind of studied that sort of English literature and that world of immense privilege as best I could. Yeah. And then I, I got to London. Uh, four weeks before filming, I lived in Chelsea. um, And it was unbelievable. I would just go down to the coffee shops and listen to people talk Mm. and order their flat whites and people's voices really were like this. And they said, lash and things like that. (laughs) Um, And that was kind of the final puzzle piece to realize you couldn't really go too far with it, you know? Yeah.
1: And the dynamic between you and um Barry's character is so important for this story were you what did the two of you need did you do a lot of rehearsal like how did you sort of find that dynamic
2: I think it was just immediately as soon as we met each other we were just best mates Mm. um there was something common in us I think (laughs) um but he just called me and he's like let's you know let's go let's do this he's super enthusiastic um and he doesn't really play by any rules. He just gets straight to the point. You know, um, I was I was just uh, terribly excited to be working with him because I think he's every actor's actor. Mm. You want you want to work with Barry Kiering and you know, you want to know what it's all about, and he was just for me, he was pure electricity the whole time. Like we we just we just naturally found each other, and I think loved each other, and just and, and that was kind of it. There wasn't really a great deal of work to do between the two of us, which is just really lucky. Yeah.
1: Was there any scene in particular that you maybe felt more intimidated by or you felt like you had to put a little more work in to prepare for? Um, Because, you know, I think this story, it pushes actors. There's a lot of challenging performance moments in it.
2: You know what? I think it was as soon as we got to the summer house because my family came into it. And I think it was more a personal fear of – okay, I have to be English around Rosamund Pike right, and right. Gary Mulligan.
1: <laughs> Legit English. <laughs> no, trip, yeah. if, if
2: anyone's, if anyone's going to see through you, it's going to be Rosamund Pike. <laughs> do, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so there was something very daunting about coming out to the house because that's also so, sort of where everything unravels and you start to see the pieces of Felix that aren't college bravado, you know, and, and things like that. So I think everything at the house. But then once we got there, became our home we were there for so long everything everything kind of became second nature
1: yeah from what i understand you you know everything was at that one location to really make make you feel comfortable like this was your home
2: and- yeah i mean Ro- rosamond Rosman slept at the house our whole crew was sort of staying out there everybody was at the pubs in the area it was really like we were the, you know the family of the manor for a little while <laughs>
1: Like summer camp, <laughs> very messed really, up summer it was, camp. <laughs> it
2: was like, um, yeah, it was this incredibly wealthy summer camp.
1: <laughs> and so, you know, when it came to Priscilla, and it sounds like you had to do a lot of your studying while shooting Saltburn. But mm-hmm. I know you did, you studied documentaries and footage for your portrayal of Elvis. But was there one item of research that ended up being? sort of breaking it open for you or that ended up being really valuable in your preparation?
2: Yeah, certainly. Um, I uh, Those two, Peter Gerlenick's book was incredibly helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, it's full of information, but I just, you get this feeling as you read both books that pretty much you get this this kind of great sadness sort of washed over me when I was reading them because you just feel this. Meteoric plummet to to hell, basically. Like his his life was, you know, just uh, it really was a tragedy in so so many ways. Um, and then the things that kind of helped me with uh, finding sort of the the human being that I wanted to portray was there were these um these home videos called Elvis by the Presleys, mm. and there was all this sort of silent Super Eight footage. Uh, of him over the years and you got to see him playing with Priscilla and swimming and, and eating food like a child and you really, you can really see the little boy in him. And It was that and then the song, there was one song that kind of tied me to it the whole time and it was his version of Bridge Over Troubled Water mm. and every day I would listen to that before uh, before going on set and it kind of centered the whole thing and, you know, confirmed the weight of it if that makes sense.
1: That's interesting. Were there songs that you listened to before doing Saltburn?
2: Before doing Saltburn, yeah. Emerald had made us a wicked playlist oh, okay. of of two thousand seven, oh, right. you know, block party, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> but but before getting there, I listened to. Um, I had this idea that it would be kind of annoyingly alt, so I had, you know, um, the Smiths, and and I mm. uh, had a lot of David Bowie playing, a lot of that kind of British eighties, you know, rock pop sort of stuff.
1: Yeah. Well, you're kind of touching on this, you know, as your career sort of grows and grows, there are points where you have to make decisions about which direction you want to go. I think both of these projects speak to the type of roles that you seem to be gravitating towards, but how would you describe what you say yes to and what you say no to at, at, at this point of where you are?
2: I think I think it's always changing. The, the one thing that I'm lucky enough now to have is the ability to kind of um, choose a little bit. And I just... I think about it a little bit, but I, I, I just I just want to work with with artists, and it's totally personal. Um, it, it's just it's just what I like. Like I really I've loved art my my uh, my whole life, really, and I, I just want to work with filmmakers who have a specific point of view or a feeling about something, and they want to leave that mark sort of on the world and in history. That's what movies sort of are to me, and and and, and that's sort of what I want to. What I hope I can continually be a part of is um, uh, a part of sort of other artists' uh, visions to be kind of in service to other artists. That's always the sort of most fulfilling thing to me as opposed to kind of just – there's a lot of making movies for money, which is which is so, so fine. Um, and it is, you know, it is the business. But, uh, yeah, I just – I really, really, really love to work with, um, with with artists that I admire.
1: And how would you say these two projects – Helped you grow as an actor. I mean, were there things you took away that maybe will will go with you to the next project and the next project?
2: Certainly, yeah. I mean, Saltburn for me, um, it was the ensemble, the mm-hmm. the people that I got to work with. Over uh, sort of working with these people who've been working their whole lives, working with Emerald, um, working with the with the crew in England, I'll have that forever. It was just a really really personal experience, um, and then playing Elvis. I mean, working with Sophia is, you know, I think anyone in the world, even if you didn't make movies, you want you wanted to do something with Sophia Coppola. Yeah. Um, so there's that. But I think it, it felt like this, you know, I, I think I said this before, it felt like I had to climb Everest or something like that. You know, I had to climb this giant mountain. And there's this moment when you get over it and you do it, and then people liked it. I think I gained um, – uh, maybe confidence is the wrong word, but I'll use it. I, I I feel a lot more confident. Uh, I feel like my, uh, what I think I'm capable of has sort of been confirmed to myself a little bit. And hopefully I don't lose that. Hopefully that stays with me.
1: Yeah. And, uh, we're almost out of time, but the, the strike is over. People can get back to work. Are you, what is what's next for you? Are you heading back to set? Where where do you go from here?
2: Yeah, I'm 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 shooting right now. I'm doing um I'm doing this te- uh, limited series called The Narrow Road to the Deep North with um with Justin Cozelle, a brilliant Australian filmmaker. So we're we're just about to to get back into that on uh, on Monday. I play Dorigo Evans, who's a, a World War II prisoner of war um, and a, a medical surgeon.
1: And is being on set your favorite part of the process, or do you love prep? That, What's that, your
2: That's the process. That's <laughs> the, I mean, action and cut is, you know... I mean, it wouldn't be anything without the prep, I don't think, for me, but, but action and cut is, you know, you're really alive in that.
0: That does it for today's Little Gold Men. We'll be back on Thursday. Find us in the meantime at VanityFair.com, on social media at VF Awards Insider. You can follow me at Katie Rich and David.
4: David Canfield, 97.
0: And Rebecca. Becca M. Ford. Our editor and producer, as always, is Brett Fuchs. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q A.